Hello, welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is Toby Kent. Hey Matt. Hi everyone. And before we go any further, yes indeed we should acknowledge that we're meeting on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. And on behalf of Matt and me, uh, we'd like to pay our respects to the uh, elders past, present and emerging and of course any who may be listening to us today. I've been wondering Matt, on a few occasions you've had to get a few things off of your chest. Anything bothering you recently? Believe it or not, there there isn't uh, today, Toby. I'm um, I'm feeling all right. I'm out of term three, and uh, kids are, kids are all good. Happy days. Baby sleeping well then, as well as you can expect. But you know, I I signed up for this, so you know, <laughs> I'm all right with it. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Well, maybe we'll. Uh, I've got a little niggle, and and it's a positive one in some ways. But a few episodes back, I you know asked a similar question and. One of the things that troubled you, you'd been for a vaccination and you'd accidentally Q-barged. I know you didn't. It was an accident. Don't uh, it's triggering. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting that you use that word triggering because as we had a bit of a discussion about it, I'd said, you said, don't you hate that? And I'd said, yeah, no, I do. And it's a sense of loss of control and so forth. And, and the way I t- articulated I think, was quite wasn't quite right. And the reason it stuck with me is... I think the reason it was triggering is that being told that you have maliciously done something wrong when you know that you haven't, at least not intentionally, really took me back to some of my school days. And I think that's why I spoke about it as a loss of control. I think there was quite a lot as I was at school that I just didn't really feel in control of stuff. And teachers would and could say... You know, you're doing this because you are, because you're thinking this or you're doing, and it was very disempowering. And in many ways, I've only really had it as an adult once uh, in, a, in a sustained way. And that was in a job where it really was the only time I've been in a bullying environment in, in the workplace or the subject of it. So, yeah, I guess it sort of sat with me, both because I feel that I miss represented what you were talking about and was suggested I misunderstood it but also because you're a teacher and wondering you've also been a student how that sits with you that sense that inadvertently maybe teachers sometimes take away control or impose things on students does that make sense absolutely it's it was my experience at school it's part of what makes a great teacher is an ability to bring control, well, let me go back a step. Many children that go to school don't have control in their home lives. They might come from backgrounds that they that school's their safety blanket, that's their bastion of, of freedom of expressing themselves when they can't. Um, people that might be questioning their gender, their sexuality, who they are, who they want to be, and they can't do that at home. And, and schools need to be a safe place for that. On a, on a holistic level, but the teachers need to be the ones to to bring that. And I think, you know, on those levels that's that's definitely true, but even on the individual student, I come to school, I want to have a good time, you know, have a little bit of fun, learn, be a kid, but this teacher has it in for me or, you know, doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be the best place for them to learn, to feel free, to, to have agency or to express themselves and their voice at all. And 
I think what makes a, a great teacher is a, an ability to realise that and to not jump to conclusions, that you aren't an authoritarian figure anymore like mm-hmm. teachers once were. We can't be. Um, some people want to be but you're always going to be fighting it and you're not going to have a good time. Um, you do need to have boundaries and set limits and, and you know, have that um, firm approach when needed but it's fair, it's justified, it's predictable. Even today, actually, a student made a paper plane and I said, we're not making paper planes at the moment. That won't get thrown around today, will it? And I said, just put it on your table. It's a great plane, by the way, but, you know, it can go flying later. And what happens? Ten minutes later, it flies across the room. And I said, student, <laughs> because I'm not going to use names, you know, what did I say about pa- I'm throwing the paper plane? What, what are you doing? Move to the front of the class. Let's go. I've, I've told you, you know. We're in the middle of someone speaking and you've done that. He's like, I didn't do it. Sorry, student. I'm, I'm really sorry for accusing you, basically. I'm, I'm really sorry that I accused you. I got it wrong. Can the person that actually threw the plane own up? And then the person, the student next to him owned up and said it was me. And I said, did you hear the instruction earlier about the plane getting thrown? He's like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, and I'm like, well, do you want to move to the front then? You know, move from the instruction? Yeah, that, I understand that. And mm. the other student was happy that I'd apologised. I went over again later and I said, I'm really sorry that I accused you for something that you didn't do. And this other student worked much better at the front of the classroom than they were. And the person that was speaking at the front of the class also was validated that they shouldn't be interrupted when they're giving a story mm-hmm. of that, that they were cheering, you know. Yeah. So I think that's an important role of a teacher to ensure that you're looking after every member of that class and sometimes it's with a, a firm action, but yeah. there's a reason for it. And you've given, you know, hints and tips. And this wasn't my first class. You know, they've had me for over half a year now. They know yeah. what the expectations are too. So I'm hoping that no one feels like they're out of control or out of their depth and they can't come to me yeah. and be, you know. But, I mean, it must be hard because, as you say, it's a class and there are 20-odd, 20-plus 20 kids in there. And our education is not uh, our systems are not really set up to support the individual. I mean, in, in some ways, and I'm sure you do an amazing role engaging with children as individuals, but it's necessarily a little bit, well, it is inherently institutional. Are there things going on in the education system that are trying to break that mould? In Victoria especially, we're in a tough time. There's been an agreement passed that is quite controversial amongst teaching staff of whether it was uh, advantageous to the teachers or not. Was it political? Was it, you know, what, what, what's, what are the problems? What are the crux of the issues in the education world? And many people don't think it was fixed. And, and many others say, well, we've got, a, we've got something, so let's take it. So, so what can you be specific? Oh, look, let's, let's say that um, right now, you know, there's issues around pay. Um, we know that the government doesn't have much money after... COVID and and there are issues around that. So that's one area. Another is the work of a teacher. It is Mm -hmm. so diverse. You know, you've got to be uh, a teacher, a nurse, a counsellor, a um, prison ward, you know, a prison guard. You've got to be at all at any time and you're making decisions on the fly with people's lives Mm -hmm. in your hands in a way with stakeholders that go from the political, the the principals, the other schools, parents, some care about NAPLAN results while others just want a happy kid at the end of the day and mm-hmm. you've got to try and manage this. Yeah. And the agreement doesn't recognise that. It gave, you know, 
here's an extra hour of planning time. But what a lot of teachers want is more time face-to-face with their kid and actually less admin, not more time to do the admin to make up for it. Um, And that's been missed. However, for for me, I I also think unions are super important and we back up our unions when we can because without them we've got no link to stand on. So it's a fine line and I think we are treading that line. But education's got a long way to go. It is institutional, um, institutionalised in, in that sense where it's uniform across every school in every regional towns to affluent suburbs to inner city to the, you know, urban fringe. It's the same deal. It's the mm-hmm. same, especially in the public sector, it's it's the same. You're a one-year teacher, you're a 20-year teacher, you know, expectations. There's a little bit of difference but... You're all in the same box and same with the students. You know, you're in that class. Mm-hmm. You don't have your friends this year, sorry. You know, yeah. oh, you, you like to play outside? Well, that's that hour a week or, you know, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. So we're in a tough time. There is a lack of authenticity. It is recognised but it's really hard to break that mould when you've just got to go ahead and, and do the job that you've got because as we knew through COVID, if, if education, if school stopped, Society stops because, you know, you can't have um, a million kids running around the state not look, being looked after and not learning and, and filling those jobs and, and parts of society we need in the future. So how do we take some time to really think about what we need in modern society, bring teachers, principals, parents, students, people that want to change the ideology of how teaching's done – how do we take them all on the journey with us to say we need to we need to improve this? And there are many people within schools, but many people external to schools that are attempting to break through and maybe even bring a bit of business corporate, mm-hmm. you know, um, understanding your role as teachers, leaders, not just you know classroom managers or something. Yeah, and I know that uh, next gaps coming up. You heard speaking at a school and you were really inspired by the way he was trying to get through to students, um, unlock their potential, help them find their inner selves. So do you want to tee us up for who we've got? Yeah, so Darren Pereira is from Success Integrated, a leadership company that works with schools and corporates and others. But he doesn't just deliver, you know, your keynote speaker, your keynote address or your... um, your consultancy role in a, you know, here's the paperwork, you know, I'll help you through it. He really inspires students and adults in a room to find their authentic self, find who they want to be. What is it that makes you tick? Who are you as a person? Why did you enter this field? You know, Because you called me. <laughs> That's right. Um, but but he, he's amazing. He, he truly um, has a way of connecting with you through story and I'm really excited for this conversation that we're going to bring to our audience now because Darren has a way to to speak to all of us and, and to show his vulnerability, which allows us to be a little bit more open and honest and reflective. Let's get into it. Darren Pereira. Darren, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So, Darren, would love to know a little bit about you first First up before we go into all the great things that you're doing today. So can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how 
some of the personal experiences that you had actually led to Success Integrated and the coaching and the great work that you're doing today. What was that journey like? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, look, my, my, my father, both parents are from India and um, dad married my wife and my wife. Jeez. That's complex. <laughs> it's complex. It's a complex why, story. This is why I'm quite scarred as an individual. Um, my dad married my wife. My dad married my mum in India but then took her to the UK straight away and, uh, and actually became very successful pretty quickly and ended up going into a regional part of the UK um, and became like the director or the manufacturing director or something like that, had a company house, company car, everything was going really well. But mum's from India and the weather was really cold and she felt and she was getting sick all the time and I was recently born and I was getting sick all the time, my sister was getting sick all the time and my mum was just complaining the whole time. And she said, I don't want to be here. And uh, a friend of my father's uh, was in Sydney and said, Look, come to Australia, there's this scheme that's going on for like 20 quid, you can send your whole family across. I think it was a skilled migration type of scheme. So he, he took it and 20, 20 pounds later we all, we all uh, pitched up. But unfortunately he just wasn't able to get the jobs and lots of stuff that he had in the UK. I think it was a very different game over here as opposed to the UK. And uh, next thing you know he's working in a warehouse and we were living in commissioned flat in Danong. So it was, uh, it was pretty tough. Um, not that I really remember that I understood that at that point, but mum and dad didn't get along very well. So it was, they were sort of, I would say they were warring as a couple. And, um, and I remember a particular moment, I think this has probably shaped my whole life. I was sitting in front of the TV. I think it was a black and white TV then. Wow, how old am I? And um, behind me was the lounge room and mum and dad are just screaming at each other, like really going, really going hard. And uh, I just remember at that time, now I can articulate it, I was traumatised, but at that time all I remember was I didn't want to look back because I didn't want to experience what was going on and I just watched the TV intensely. So mum and mum and dad are warring, going crazy, and all I remember is... My mum's upset and then dad says, well, if you're not happy, get out of here. And then there was this real intense silence. I just kept watching the TV. Mum had gone to the bedroom, come charging out, went in between the TV and me and the door was not far away with her bags packed. And she's opened the door, slammed the door and in her heels, clink, 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 and down the stairs she went. And then, I don't know, minutes later, Clink, 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 clink. I hear it coming back at you. Open the doors. Oh, I can't leave my son. And, and then comes back in and then the memories, memory ends. And I remember after that that I had this unbelievable ability to be able to, when they were screaming and yelling at each other, to mentally turn the volume down on them and mentally turn the volume up on the TV. So in other words, it wasn't really happening. So if you had told me when I was six or seven, oh, yeah, how, how's mum and dad? Fine. How's family life? Good. And so that was my way of surviving. But what actually ended up happening was that I'd shut myself down emotionally. And I shut myself down from family and it was a very painful experience. But I didn't really come to understand that till probably about age 27. That's when it started to, to click. And actually, funnily enough, around the five mark, they said, oh, Darren's not hearing properly. And uh, so I went and got those tests. I don't know if you've ever been tested, the ear testing, they make the sounds. Mm-hmm. And they said, look, 
he doesn't seem to be able to hear, but there's nothing wrong with his ears. And many years later, I clicked that that's what was going on psychologically. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a physical thing. It was a, it was a it was a mental thing. And so um, yeah, so I think that, that that was a struggle. And then also being Indian, um, you know, in, in in Melbourne at that time, I think it was only two Indian kids in the whole primary school. So of course I got teased and bullied and and isolated and very much treated like how the indigenous people are treated today all the same horrible words and names that were that were called i got called that so i became quickly ashamed of my culture ashamed of my skin color ashamed of my parents low self-image felt very rejected and then i think as i grew up i got a sharp tongue and learned how to you know use my words to 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 attack people and humiliate people so that they wouldn't attack me and then I think now my life's work has really been is really about being yourself mm-hmm. and being comfortable being yourself, you know, because I wasn't comfortable being myself. And I think that every person has either, well, no, I won't say every, but many have got either small T or capital T trauma, yeah? And, and, and so I feel like I want to give people permission to be able to be themselves, that they're absolutely perfect as they are, and to embrace that. And when you do that, then, you know, life is very, very different. And you talked about finding, eventually finding your authentic self and then actually bringing that to others. I remember having heard you before, Darren, talking about how you, in your professional life, that didn't come to you straight away either. You had to go through a bit of a journey professionally before you were able to get to the point you are today. Well, yeah, well, it was interesting because um, I suppose I, uh, coming from an Indian background, cultural background, there's pretty, they value education a lot, <laughs> And I don't think I'm as my my upbringing was as hardcore as many others, but you know, um, yeah. But you would, you know, my father would say, "Dadin, you know, Sonny, you can do anything you want as long as you're a doctor, lawyer, and accountant." You know that type of thing. You know, and I don't know whether he actually said those exact words, but it was that sort of you know feeling. That's what I got, got came across. And so, um, you know, of course. I did my work experience in year 10 and I just copied what my mate did and he went to an accounting practice. I said, okay, that sounds good. That looks like they dress well and they make good money and that was it and dad will be happy and proud of that. And so that's what I did. I chose all those subjects, accounting, echo, legal, business, maths, worked my butt off, got to university and ended up landing the number one accounting firm in the world. I was working for KPMG and funnily enough, after about 26 days, I'm thinking, what on earth am I doing here? Mm-hmm. I mean... I wasn't good with numbers. I don't know how you. I don't know how you get through a course, an accounting course, and not know you're not good with numbers. But that just shows how how strong conditioning is, you know, and just like gonna work and just gonna do it. So I wasn't good with numbers. I, I hated my job, and then within what a year, I was the worst performing graduate out of 117. I mean, I hated my job. I wasn't good with numbers. You know, everything was going badly. I didn't get a promotion. Only guy out of 117 that didn't get a promotion, didn't get a pay rise. I mean, it was, he was humiliating. They strip you of all the big jobs, right? They try to bore you out of the position. They target your performance. And then my conference had gone underground and within two years I was depressed. So to go from sort of that place <laughs> and really, you know, following what I call my conditioning without really thinking and understanding myself to now having spoken to now probably over half a million people in sort of seven or eight countries – that's a, that's a vast difference, you know, and, and, and so I talked to a lot of young people about trying to work out what their nature is, doing that whole self-exploration stuff, what are my desires, what are my passions, what are my strengths and talents, what are my ideals, what are my values and how can I put all that together so that I can be aligned um, and do something that you truly love. 
Can I just ask, and thank you, Darren, for just being so uh, honest and frank of, you know, about what I see some sensitive issues as well as formative ones. One of the things that stands out, because I, in looking at the website, got much more of a sense of, you know, be a winner, here's how to succeed and so forth, which is obviously part of the positioning. But I think what I'm hearing in and taking from this story more is actually maybe a more subtle, even more humble kind of conception of winning uh, and what achieving goals is. Where, where, how, how does that sit in a sense between your positioning of helping everyone to be their true and best selves mm. and be a winner, which often <laughs> in our societies has a certain connotation? Yeah, actually a very interesting pickup and, and you must have watched the little video that I, that I had. It's a very good pickup because actually my whole life was all about that. And I think interesting when I did a bit of um, counselling after I started to realise what was going on in my life and what was how messed up I really was, then um, actually it was a really good friend of mine who, who, who did this and he said, Darren, in order to get your father's attention, because my father was a bit of a workaholic and so he never really paid much attention. And so the only way I noticed he gave me any attention when I was doing well. So I, I played cricket at a high level, just a few levels under state. I played table tennis at a high level and pretty much at state level. Um, so whenever I was performing well, oh, oh right, oh, yeah, good, good, good. And then he would boast to other the family friends, oh, Darren's doing this, Darren's doing getting good grades, he's doing this. So I soon psychologically realised that if I become a super achiever, an overachiever, I'll get my dad's attention and love. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, I didn't understand that at that age, but now I understand that. And so it was all about winning. It's all about being the best. It's all about being number one. And only over the last few years, I would say that that's changed, you know, and it's not about being number one. And I think about being your personal best, but it's because I'm not trying to chase my dad's love through success and winning. Yeah, and maybe because I've achieved a, a level of that too, Maybe it's subsided somewhat, but I really think it's about being your authentic self and doing something that you truly enjoy and making a positive contribution that's more important than all those other things. Now, let, now let me say, when we talk about success, we talk a lot about really, it's generally the financial stuff. It's the objects. It's that, it's that sort of stuff as opposed to the internal stuff. But but definitely now having achieved all the, the financial and the... Um, the houses and the cars and you've got all that sort of stuff now, it's like, you know what, that's not what brings you happiness. That's mm -hmm. not what brings you fulfilment. But sometimes I think we need to learn that lesson before we can actually realise it because we're always chasing it all the time, always striving but never arriving. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right, it has changed and from that win-win at all costs to what I just said. And how long have you been running Success Integrated? So I think it's a, just over 20 years now when I first started it. Um, but probably been sort of working for myself for maybe a little over that, maybe 22 or 23 yeah. years. So and was long. it coming out of that big corporate, you know, as you say, KPMG, about as big as they get? Uh, yeah. And kind of guy, actually, I could still be successful, but I think I want to do it on my own terms. Yeah, well, I, I think what, I mean, KPMG, was actually, there's a very interesting story. When I was at KPMG, a good friend of mine, well, actually my best friend, he was like a, a brother from another mother, that type of thing, you know, really close. 
And he decided in those days, you know, if you're a computer programmer, you were making a fortune. Yeah, you just couldn't go wrong. And he decided to give that up to do karate. That was his passion. And so he was free during the days because, of course, they're not doing stuff during the days. And he came to lunch in Collins Street and we were having lunch and we were having sushi, I remember, actually. And he asked me this question because he could see that I was not exactly happy. He says, look, you know, Daz, what are you passionate about? I'm like, what? He goes, you know, what's your purpose in life? <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? He goes, do you really think, because I was brought up a Catholic, do you really think that Jesus is the son of God? I'm like, whoa, can we just eat the sushi? Like, what? You know, what what's going on here, right? Well, why, why the Spanish uh, Inquisition? But I tell you, when he asked those questions. At least Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're keeping it consistent. Um, you know, but w- when he had asked those questions of me, it was like a thorn in my mind, a splinter in my mind. I'm like, I need to know the answer to these questions. I didn't have answers to those questions. And he was big on the personal development bandwagon at that time. And, of course, he looked into himself and decided he wants to live a life of passion. And that got me going. And I think that those questions really made me think about who I am, what I love, what I'm about. Mm-hmm. And then after two years I'd left KPMG and actually had no job, right? Because I, I almost said I will – in fact, I did say that I will never work another year end as long as I live, right, even if, even if I have to be on the dole. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was serious. So I went back to university and did a graduate diploma in education training, which I really don't think helped me personally. But during that time – I was doing a lot of personal development, spiritual development, soul-seeking. And then when I was doing going, going to all these seminars, I said, I want to be like that guy up on the stage. And I think it was actually um, uh, Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you know Zig Ziglar. He's got a very Southern American accent. He, he talked like this, right? He said, poo-wee, you got, you got some stinking thinking. You got to take a check up from the neck up. That's the sort of guy he was, right? So it was really like really fascinating. I said, like, I want to be just like him. Yeah. And that's when it was born about wanting to be a speaker and, and, and all, all of that. But who's going to employ a 23-year-old failure, <laughs> you know? Like I don't understand how it's going to happen. I knew I had the vision but I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then I was just talking a big game to everyone. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And it was getting a bit embarrassing because I wasn't doing anything. And then my, my brother-in-law said, hey, Darren, you just got to stop with this whole big talking. You know, it just doesn't look good. So that was really a slap across the face. But then a, a guy in the cricket club had worked for a company called Leadership Management Australia. I said, hey, what, what? Tell me a bit more about this. And he was like a licensee there. And I said, hey, you need to, you need, you need to employ me. And I started there. And that's where I started in the field because I do things like leadership, management, sales, productivity, et cetera. But the thing is, I didn't realize at the time, but it was uh, commission sales. So I had to become a BDM, mm-hmm. right? So they said, look, because the, the guy said, look, not him, but the other. Owner. Sorry to interrupt there, but for our listeners, BDM being business development manager. Business development manager, yeah. yeah. And the owner of the company said, look, oh, you can do all this training and talk about success and all of that. That's no problem. But first you've got to bring clients in the door. So he goes, give me a list of 100 people that you know. Firstly, there was no social media. There was no LinkedIn. I'm like, I know nobody. I'm not networked. It was actually really, really bad. Anyway, I came up with – I was putting down uncles and aunties down because I was desperate, you know. And I started and I think I'd earned $500 in four months. I was the worst performer again. Now, that's tough. Mm-hmm. When you give up everything to sort of go into the field and you're the worst performer again. I was probably the youngest guy in that business by 10, 15 years. 
there was a lot of people who were like retired CEOs, yeah, right. directors of HR who so wanted to get back. pick up the phone and you were starting from the oh, bo- literally from the ground up. Absolutely, absolutely. So it was really tough and I didn't know how to sell. And so then uh, interestingly, uh, the licensee that I was working with, lovely guy, but probably wasn't, I knew he wasn't a high performer. And the, being the guy I was, I wanted to know who, who the best was. And so I actually went out with one of the guys who was one of the best there. And I don't know, he must have liked me or something, my attitude. So when they got rid of me, <laughs> uh, I didn't tell anybody because I was so embarrassed. I mean, gosh, I was still living at home. I'm not going to say, hey, Dad, I got sacked from this job. That would have been a disaster. And he said to me, Darren, new financial year starts in four, three or four weeks' time. Start with me. And then I started with him and he gave me great mentoring. And from $500 in four months, I earned $75,000 in nine months. And within a year, I was the best performing BDM in the company. And the repeat my performance in next year, I was like the wonder kid. They were sending me all their conferences. I was teaching other people how to do the work. It was quite quite interesting. And then I started my own business after that. I just want to know how that, how that happened. What, what clicked for you? What changed? Was it the mentoring itself? Was it that you needed the confidence, the spark? Was it just the contacts to match the attitude? What what happened to go from 500 to 75,000? I, I think one was activity. You know, you do a lot of work, you know, but you don't you, know, you don't see the results necessarily. So I think partly it was activity that wasn't come, hadn't come off. I certainly think it was good mentoring. I mean, this guy was really good, really believed in me. I, I'm a big believer of positive expectancy. You believe in the unexpressed potential of a person and you talk to them like they're behaving in that way, like they're acting, you know, like they're going to be that. And so he was just a big believer of me. He could see my attitude. He could see my enthusiasm, et cetera, and he could see I was teachable. So then he sort of came out with me, et cetera, and I could see how he spoke and talked and, you know, he helped me a little bit. So I think the coaching, the positive expectancy, um, the activity, and then, of course, confidence over time, and I suppose a burning desire to be the best. You know, that was always the, the drive for me, as you know. And I wasn't really – my psychology wouldn't accept being anything other than that because I probably achieved that through my school life and through my sport. So I think it was part of my psychology. So in the end, I was going to keep going until. I mean, I was working all the time, so, yeah. But it must be particularly – and your KPMG uh, LMA, yeah. uh, experience must have been all the more painful given that you were – kind of formed that way with that I'm going to be the best, I'm going to win at all costs and actually like, no. Very and painful, very and, and, and even more painful because I'd given up KPMG, not that it was a hard thing to give up, but, but I'd given up like a top job to back myself and go and to do this and I'd become a failure again and that was really, really harsh. At the same time, and we earlier almost had a conversation around resilience was it the or has the ability to lift yourself out of those disappointments made you even better at what you do now? Had you had you only ever been the best, you'd have just been the best, right? I, I believe so because I think I, I, I don't know what you feel, but I feel like we often learn more from our mistakes and our failures and our disappointments and our setbacks than we do our victories and our wins, right? So it really makes you reflect, okay, well, why didn't I get that? And how come that didn't come through? And how can I do that better? And so that's been a big part of my, who I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, now we've collected over, it could be like 500 or 550,000 evaluations. Like we're serious about feedback and we crunch and analyze it and understand the themes. So it's something that's part of who I am. It's always about how can we get better and how can we do it better? So um, I think that reflection makes a difference and the pain because you want to avoid the pain at all costs you want to get better pretty quickly because you don't want to keep staying in that pain 
I want to – there's people listening to this podcast that are – I don't know, actually, that there are people listening to this podcast that feel a little bit trapped in their work, in their job mm. because of a fear of potentially failure but, but a fear of not being able to support their family, to live the lifestyle they've got, to not have the assets going forward in an uncertain world. Mm. You know, this sort of idea where the passion's – are there and, and they've almost maybe potentially done a spiritual journey but they just can't take that next step. Mm. What do you say to people that are at the level of arming and ahhing between what they need to do? How can they do it almost? Is there a way to do it safely? Is it rip the Band-Aid off? What do you think uh, is mm. the, the best way to approach, I need to make a change, I'm unhappy but if I actually look at the old tick box of what life should have been when I was 17 and my, my dad said this is how you be successful, I've ticked them all. So mm. wh- why would I give that up? What am I doing? Mm. I don't know if I'll give you the answer that's the best way but I'll give you my way. Mm. And, and certainly I would say your shoulds need to turn into a must. You know, I, I should – get out of my job, I should explore my passions, I should start up my own business and we should all over ourselves, right? It's only until it becomes a must when the pain becomes so acute that you cannot handle it anymore, you know? And so that that came at KPMG. I, I, was, I felt so badly about myself. I felt like I, I mean, it was, I'm so happy that happened because if it was probably less, I probably would have just grinded it out. But because it was so polarizing, it was so painful, it was like I was willing to go on the dole. So I, I think until you reach that tipping point, you're going to keep umming and ahhing. If you're in a comfortable place, you're going to keep umming and ahhing. I should, I should, you know, I should. So I, I always, I, I think it's a good thing when you get to the place where you're, you know, uh, at ground zero, you're at the bottom, you know, because then it makes you shift, it, it makes you move. So then, for those people who are umming and ahhing, my wish for them, it's going to sound awful and crude, is I hope you really go through some big disaster or something really difficult happens for you. Not, not because I want difficult things to happen to you, but so that it'll shift you into moving in, into that place. Because I, I believe in something called feather brick bus. I don't know if you've heard that before. No, go on. T- tell so everyone. Feather, feather brick bus is, you know, life is always whispering to you and sort of telling you, hey, this is what you should do. Hey, you're not happy in that job. Maybe go over there. It's, a whist- it's like a feather. It tickles you and you sort of like, you, you, you wipe that feather off and you just, oh, hold on, let me focus. Then, then the universe says, okay, you're not listening to that, so now I'm going to give you a brick, bang, in the face. You know, you lose your job, you know, or you get some really negative feedback from your boss or something happens. You go, whoa, far out, gee, that's the... <laughs> Woo! Right? And then you go, you know, okay, but then you recover and you keep doing the same thing again. And then you're on your own merry way and you're looking to the left and suddenly you turn right and bang, the bus comes. And then you're in the metaphorical ICU. And I think when you're in that metaphorical ICU, you're either going to completely give up and, you know, it's a turn for the worst or you're going to go, I need to transform, I need to change, this is the last chance I'm going to go. So I think sometimes people need that, that bus is there a way to 
be struck by a bus but you've got yourself in padded gear in a, in a trampoline <laughs> world <laughs> where you get the same effect but you've brought that on yourself, do you think? Or, or do you need the, the world to tell you? But what about if someone says, you know, I don't want to wait until I'm hit by a bus mm. or I get sick or someone, mm. you know, grief takes over. I need to find this discomfort and pain on my own terms. Have, have you been able to find that out yourself or through, you know, the people that you've spoken to in the past? Look, it's absolutely possible because I, I think what it is is it's a denial. The, re- the reason why we're not doing it when we sort of know we really should, it's because we're denying a part of us, right, because maybe safety, financial safety, maybe comfort zone, maybe this is I've done this degree and, I've, and, I, and I'm down this path already, I've got a mortgage, I've got a wife and kids, all that sort of stuff, a partner and kids. Now it's like this is very unsafe to shift gears. So to bring it on yourself is to be honest, mm-hmm. is to really take a look at yourself and say, you know what, hey, come on now, what, what's this voice saying and am I going to honour it? Am I going to be real? Am I going to be? And so I think when you look at that, then then if, if you that voice becomes louder when you give it the space, then it becomes uncomfortable to be where you are because you're thinking, oh, and that voice is becoming louder and louder. Then the question is, well, if the voice is loud and I'm still doing what I'm doing, why? Then we know it's fear and we identify the fears. And then we say, well, what is that thing that's not, not allowing me to believe in myself that I can actually do this? Right, and then sometimes you have to go into that the ugly stuff, you know, the, the, maybe the childhood stuff, the the self image stuff, the, the the stuff, the belief, the doubts, etc., and go there. And so I think that will bring it on for you. But I think also to have, oh, and I can't underestimate this, a mentor or people who are in the field that you want to be in, or people that know about that. Um, who are encouraging you, who you look up to and respect, revere, you know, a guru, a mentor, those people who are constantly saying, hey, you know, that positive experience, you can do it, mate. I've, of course you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was way worse than you and, and I look at where I am. You, you're way better. You know, you need that. You need that encouragement, that support. So, so the support and encouragement from a mentor, the honesty within yourself, right, I think those two things, right, will then louden the, make the voice louder and then move you in that direction. Yeah. And and hopefully if you are overconfident and you're feeling that strength and you're not honest, the mentor actually brings that instead. Absolutely. Yeah. You were talking about coming to Australia as a young child, the Australia that was. So I moved here 10 years ago. Um, my wife is born in London, Indian parents, and she had spent in the late 90s, you know, as a lot of Brits do, working holiday in Australia, and on the one hand loved it. On the other hand, you know, it's not like England doesn't have its problems with racism and and so Mm. forth, but found Australia just that much more retrograde than the UK was uh, Mm. at that time. And I remember, so the job that brought me to Melbourne uh, was at ANZ Bank, um, Mm. my kind of KPMG type experience for you. Mm. And, you know, ANZ was winning all of these awards for diversity and inclusion and and I couldn't believe the things that people would casually say. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is like being in London in the late 80s. Mm. You know, it really felt like Australia was a good 20 years behind in that Mm. journey. In the short 10 years that I've been here, I've also felt Australia become more inclusive. Mm. 
in that short a time it's palpable, which is, again, I still think it's got an awfully long way to go. Uh, and as you mentioned, particularly in the context of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, we had Senator Hanson, Pauline Hanson, I don't think we should call her senator, uh, <laughs> you know, walking out in a very clear uh, in the Senate today on the day that we're recording this. Anyway, very long intro to a straightforward question. How do you, when you reflect on the Australia that you arrived in, the bullying in Dandenong and so forth, and when you think about the Australia that you're raising your children in, has there been progress? Where Where is oh, Australia? I think it's chalk and cheese. I think it's chalk and cheese. I, I, I t- I'm a big, I'm an avid supporter of Carlton, so... No one's giving me any smiles here. Okay, fine. A uh, big year uh, for you, though. Yeah, big year. And um, and and I, I will say that the AFL are doing some great stuff. Like, really, it is wonderful. And and, and I think the, the the Indigenous and the Aboriginals are really – they're finding a voice. They're starting to feel proud. They're showing off their skills. They're, they're, it's more inclusive. There's some footballers in the past who have paved the way for that, like Adam Goods, et cetera, Nicky Wimmer, et cetera, which is fantastic. So I think they're coming a long way. And because AFL is such a big thing here, especially in, in Victoria, uh, I, I think it's it's shaping, absolutely. And I and I give them a lot of credit for that. And Carlton does, um, Carlton respects. Mm-hmm. So domestic violence against women, fantastic work. Um, but looking at my kids growing up, firstly, there's much many more Indians here. So it's more normal, right? So I think that's one. I don't think they feel that sense of being different. Um, and it's not like I came, you know, what we call a fob, you know, fresh off the boat. I, I didn't, like, I, if I'd come, like, you know, when I was 20 and I had an accent and all of that and, you know, my, my dress sense and all that was different, then you can understand why you're being picked on. But my name is Darren. I had an Australian accent. It's like, it's just my colour. That, that was it really. So it was just, it was harsh really, yeah. to be honest. But so I think it's it's a very different world to, uh, and, and m- very much so in the last few years literally. And all these issues that the millennials and the Gen Z have really picked up on, which is that, you know, gender equality and, you know, the environment stuff and Black Lives Matters and all of that I think is really making a difference. Racism, the talk is, is, is out there now. So I think it's completely different, completely yeah. different. And on that, you work with some school groups and young people as well mm. um, in your in your work. And and I'm a school teacher, and I notice you mentioned the youth coming through, just how brilliant they are. Mm. And today we did a lesson on racism. We're doing a big unit on racism mm. in Australia and around the world, and past and present. How they, you know, we call it change and continuity. What's what's changed and what's continued over time, and. I just asked the question, what comes to mind when you hear the word racism? What people, places, times, whatever it might be. And they were coming up with the most exceptional responses that no, I don't think many teachers would have thought, but they're talking about Armenian genocide. They're talking mm. about Rosa Parks. They haven't done the civil rights movement at mm. school yet. You know, it, They're talking about Indigenous Australians. They're talking about reconciliation and recognition while also talking about First Nations people around the world. Like there's all these examples that I don't think if you've got a room of adults necessarily would have said the same thing or, or you know, would have been as rich. And and I'm so excited because of the youth and, and that can be translated to the environment, to, to any anywhere. And 
you mentioned Pauline Hanson before, and I don't want this to drag into a political discussion or anything like that, but this honesty that you mentioned, this transformation, spiritual awakening, there's a segment of society in Australia that where that continuity happens from the past, which is attacking this woke ideal, isn't it? That, that's this, this conservative sort of idea that's coming through of we will not change, we will fight back against this progress. And sadly it happened with some players, you know, they've got their own reasons at Manly with the LGBT I don't know okay. if you saw that, but the the jersey to wear the um, the diversity jersey that many players said no. Like there's this war at the moment. I think it comes down to honesty and authenticity and respect at the end of the day. But I don't know. Do, do you think that your role and, and maybe the young people today that are listening to you and saying, I want to do that, but what I want to do is get the message of progress across, not strapping myself to the ground, you know, on a road, which is all valid, you know, not the protest movement, but the I want to change your mind in a respectful way. Can we do that with the youth today? I'm sure the answer is of course, but but how can we do that? Absolutely. And, and I think they're streaks ahead of all of us. And because of social media and all the things that they're across, they're across so many things that, you know, and when I was growing up, I had no idea. We didn't even know what was going on in the next suburb, let alone what was happening in Armenia. You know, so um, I think that they're, they're exceptional from that point of view. I don't really get involved in politics or, or all of those things, but what I do say is people are people. And if we can respect human beings and, of course, animals and the environment as well, but in talking about people, uh, if we can be ourselves, honestly ourselves, express my nature, express my personality, express my desires, express my talents and strengths authentically and we respect that, automatically there's a, a kaleidoscope of so many different things and different people out there and we work together and we collaborate and we celebrate everybody in their own way. Now, whether that means they're, they're gay or whether that means they're Indian or whether that... I don't think that matters because we've got to see past that. We've got to see internal, not, not excellent, but very superficial. This world is becoming more and more superficial. You know, Kim Kardashian, she's got junk in her trunk, she's got this, she's got that. You know, it's like, who looks like that? You know, like, it's, it's too superficial and I think if we can go internal and look to the actual person, I think that's that's the most important thing. And all these things will automatically, you respect automatically, and then all these issues become a, a non-event. Darren, you were just talking about if we can be ourselves, you know, authentically respect ourselves that automatically that becomes a kaleidoscope of respect and you know an embracing of one another in mm. a sense to matt's question there was another point when you were talking and you spoke about passion and helping people find their passion and i was just wondering how do you equip people who don't know their passion you know how do you for some people it's a bit like um, again, in my old role in the resilience world, people felt quite, some people we worked with felt quite oppressed by the encouragement to be happy. They were like, you know, it's actually, I know people are doing it with a good intent, best of intentions, it has negative associations for me. 
How, how do you get around that? How do you help people find passion in a way that, again, where it doesn't become an imposition? I don't know what my passion is and I'm being told to be passionate. I, don't, I just want to be me. It's, it's actually fascinating that people say they don't know what their passions are, they don't know what their strengths are. You know, it is absolutely fascinating because it's the most natural thing. Desire is natural. De- what's passion? Desire for something that you, you know, positive desire for something. Not, I'm not talking about food and all. I'm talking about something that you know on, on a stronger, on a stronger basis. But certainly, how can you not know what you really love? I mean, you just love it. There might not be an explanation for it, but it's it, it's it's there. So if they're not understanding what their passions are, if they don't understand their own nature, there's a shutting down of that. And I think that's societal. I think in, in one word, it's conditioning. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. our parents are trying to say, you know, square pegs, trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. So now I, 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 I shut down a part of who I am to get love from my parents or from my significant others or from my friends, wherever it might be, because if I express what I really want or who I really am, people won't like me, people won't love me, people won't accept me, people won't validate me, people won't acknowledge me. So then it becomes a confusion a confusion. Oh no! I I, I want this. No, actually, do, no, no. It's it's nature versus nurture, and what I'm saying is we got to. And when I do the my Shape Your Destiny program, which is a really powerful program, actually, I actually get people to stand up. You know, legs apart, knees bent, shoulders pinned back, head slightly raised, eyes closed, both hands clenched tightly in a fist, and we've got like Eye the Tiger playing, like a remix version. <laughs> And as the music's pumping, I say, what are you really passionate about? And what they've got to do, they think about it for about five or six seconds and then I say, sit down and answer question number one as fast as you can. You've got 20 seconds, go. And they're just going to write dot points as fast as they can. So they're mentally vomiting on the page. Now, if I asked you a series of questions in, in a really short period of time, what's your name, what's your phone number, where do you live, and you've got no time to think, just respond, you're going to give me your honest answer. So what I want to do is I want to temporarily collapse people's conditioning so their instinctive response can come out, the natural response. And, of course, as part of that, sometimes the other stuff comes out as well. And then we go back and we do this for, we, do the, we do it for passion mapping, we do it for talent mapping, we do it for ideal mapping. And then they siphon through like, you know, panning for gold. And they look through all the rocks and the rubble and the dirt and they find those little gold nuggets, right? And then they put together, I say, passions plus talent, plus ideal, equals fulfilling future. Well, if you yeah. do something that you love, that you're great at, and that inspires you, you're going to have a happy, fulfilling, successful future. And I believe that's the algebraic equation for our lives. And so I feel that's my purpose to get out there. And I've run this program maybe 2,000 times in four countries and it works cross-culturally. And it's because of the process of doing it. Because you can ask someone, what are, you, what are you passionate about? What do you love? You know, what are you good at? And if you do that, they go back into their normal state, which is in their head actually, which is not always good to be in all the time, in their head. And what do they do? They process their conditioning. Dr. Lloyd Accountant, you know, and next thing you know, it's coming out. And, and I think that's, you know, they've got to be real and, and, and access what's inside. So is it too simplistic to say that perhaps when people say they don't know what their passions are, what they, or they're not passionate about anything, what they really mean is, or part of what they mean is, I don't know how to articulate what I love in a way that I think might be acceptable to you. Yep. Or, or I, 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 will, I will not even recognise that part of me because I know you won't. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, or yeah. I think 
I know you won't, you know? Yeah, the conditioning is too deep. Correct. Yeah, Could yeah, it yeah. be even not about the external but the fact that, you, and you mentioned it earlier, trauma. If I open up this little dream that I had as a child, if I open this person up that I remember, I've shut down that because it reminds me of the TV. It ri- reminds me of that moment. I've lived 30, 40, 50 years hiding this thing and you're telling me to wake me up. I, I'm, I've shut this thing down. You know, for good reason. Yeah. Right? So why, don't wake it up because I've got to wake everything up. The you know? can of worms come out, mm. right? And look, I, I think that's a great insight, and I, and I think that has a massive role to play because if you do open that up, what you're saying is I'm now opening up being myself, mm. who that young, let's say, kid, that little that little self, that little vulnerable self, was not good enough, was not right, shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. It brings up the trauma. And if you're not ready to receive the trauma or not ready to deal with it, survival mode will stop you from doing it. You'll get distracted, you'll deny, you'll do whatever because you can't handle it. And that's life protecting you in some ways, right? So we've got to be ready for it too, yeah? I I do notice that a lot with people that I know. I mean, people that have had trauma-filled backgrounds, family, you know, sort of the generation above me it feels like there's a lot there and you just – come on, wake up, what are you doing? You're doing the same mistake over and over, you're doing the same thing. Like don't you want more? Like you're hitting retirement age and you're still complaining about like, you know, that person next door or whatever. It's like you actually have to go back to that respect and find meeting them and and you used a phrase earlier about finding out, talking to them as if uh, at the height of who they could be potentially rather than knocking them down for not changing. Do you have experience working with people in that space or is there something that you can use from what you're currently doing where they can be safely awakened or is it just like go to the psych first and then come and see me? Like- <laughs> <laughs> well, actually many who do the coaching with me have been to psychs and actually it's quite appalling what I hear them say. It's like, but what about that mother issue? What about the pink elephant in the room? Did they not mention this? And they're like, no. And I said, how long have you been going to... A psychologist for or counsellor for, oh, a year and a half? I said, they've never brought this up. And it's like, it's surprising. Anyway, that's that, I'm, I'm not trying to make dispersions on psychologists. I've got good psychologist friends, but sometimes some of them are not really where they need to be at. But the question that you're asking is, you know, do they have to go through that process before being awakened? Uh, I think a safe place, if you're talking about safe places, if you find people, like you said, a mentor or something like that, who sees you as you are and they're validating you for who you are. That's probably the first time or maybe very few times where you've been validated to say that person that I always wanted to be that I am, they got shut down. This person is saying, I love that person. I I want to be around that person. I want to hear and see more of that person. So I think that allows you to become a little bit more, uh, bring on feelings of safety, right, and then it's just the war within yourself to say, oh, you know, yeah, but yeah, am I really? Is it okay? So you just need a few more experiences and then, you know, if you really respect that person and they really care for you, they can really take you up. And so a good coach, a good mentor can be make a world of difference. And obviously some of the programs that you run and your own experience clearly talks to the value of a strong or good mentor. But there will be a lot of kids out there who – really struggle to find a role model, let alone a mentor. What do you either do for them or or what are your thoughts about people who are in more challenging circumstances? Is it 
just a question of knocking on doors and trying their luck. And is there a way one can identify the mentor? If you think of your 15-year-old self back in Dandenong, how would you advise that Darren to get the mentor that he needed? See, see, it's interesting, right? You say, oh, well, you know, if you're 15 or if you're this or you're that, then how do you find that person? You know, like, and I think, yeah, that saying, seek and you shall find is really important. And I'll just give you a funny example. Just recently, I've been whinging and complaining about wanting to play table tennis because I played table tennis at a very high level. And then a few years ago, my, my, my um, nephew and I bought a table together and then he didn't want to use it. And so I put it in my place and I've only played it a few times. And every time I play, I just love it. But generally speaking, aren't, people can't play that level because I was playing quite high level. So I'm like, oh, I need to find someone. And my nephew said, stop whinging about it. Just go onto Facebook or some social media and find someone to hit up with table tennis, wherever it might be. And I just avoided it for a long time. And then just on the weekend, I said, okay, now I'm going to look at this thing. So I started doing it. Next thing you know, within a few hours, and then a, a friend of mine, one of my speakers actually, said, Darren, there's this girl who played a Victoria level. And I texted her and within that day, I now next Thursday, I'll be playing table tennis with this girl. Now, mm-hmm. until I was ready to seek, I wasn't mm-hmm. going to find. So yeah. I, I think there are people out there for sure. There's teachers, there's careers advisors, there's if, – if you're in that frame of mind, like anything, if you really love cricket, for example, your mind will take you to an environment where cricket is being played or watching cricket, whatever it might be. So when your mind goes into that space, then doors open up, things start to happen. So, yeah. Have you ever come across a book called, by Matthew Said called Bounce? I've heard this so, guy. Yeah, but so Matthew Said um, got into writing sort of almost self-help books for children. and But his original book called Bounce was because he was oh, the... Bounce, yes, yes, I've heard. Yeah, the UK table tennis champion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's... Uh, so anyway, as somebody who's interested in performance and being yourself and, and so forth, uh, and also table tennis, it's, it's an interesting one. I think one of the things um, that kind of links a little bit with what you were talking about in, in terms of you know, the feather brick bus uh, and, and just that need to struggle at some point it's a slightly different framing but one of the the latter or later chapters in the book is about um choking i almost forgot it then which would have been kind of ironic to anyway uh yeah and it's really he he choked in a world championship final uh and he kind of quite goes quite deep into it i mean it's really interesting to understand how someone can be at the very top of a game and suddenly be struggling to really play any better than just another amateur. Uh, it's really interesting. Mm, great recommendation. That was going to be a question I asked of you, Darren. Um, I know it's a question without notice, but do you have something that you would recommend our audience go get their hands on, a, a book, a film, a documentary, a, a, an article, something? Hmm. Now, it really depends where people are at. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the theme of today was a little bit about uh, – maybe not a theme, but we spoke a little bit about trauma. We spoke about, you know, the can of worms opening up and stuff like that. And, and a movie that oh, – my favourite movie of all times is Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you've watched that mm-hmm. movie, but, yeah. gee, Matt Damon and what's the other guy? Um, is it Batman? Robin Williams? Yeah. Robin Williams? Robin Williams? Oh, that, right. Robin yeah. Williams and, and Matt Damon. Yep. He's a psychologist and yeah, – yeah, yeah, yeah. That. 
that movie, wow, that really is is a powerful movie because he's then forced to confront the stuff that I mean, he had big capital T trauma, right? And then he then goes on to heal as a result. So I, I would recommend that book, but I, there's so many books. I, I'm now more into the spiritual side of things. So I feel like the personal development is only a more superficial version of the deeper spiritual roots behind things. So I look very deeply into sort of philosophy, which has very much shaped the programs I run, the advice I give. So when I, when I, when I do like my coaching, for example, uh, what, what ends up happening is that I think my, the greatest gift I can offer people is that I can see the patterns in their thinking. So I can find the patterns. I can get I, I work out what's going on as their issues from young for, through a bit of questioning, but I work out patterns. And everybody works in patterns, everybody, all the time. And so once you work out what that pattern is, so then I'll say to them, you know, I remember this one girl coming up to me and saying, oh, Darren, you know, she, she's one of those people that could only, only do those, you know, overnight, you know, you meet a guy and you, you know, overnight thing and then it's gone. And she's like, I want a proper deep relationship. And I said, okay, and so we're talking about it. And then a few weeks later she comes back from, to the coach and she goes, I found this guy. And he's amazing and he's this and he's that and he's this. And this is in my very, very early days, so I wouldn't do this now. And I said, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I said, oh, I'll give it three weeks. Oh, she was so upset. She nearly stormed out of that room. You know, I had no tact back in those days. And, um, and then anyway, she finished up the coaching session and I don't think she was going to come back, to be honest. Anyway, three and a half weeks later, I get this phone call. I'm going to come in for a coaching session. Okay. First word she says is, how did you even work out the time frame? <laughs> and, and, and I said, I said because what I understand is your mind, your psychology hasn't changed. So how on earth have you attracted this amazing guy? Because you haven't changed psychologically. Your mind, mind patterns haven't changed. So this is just a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. You know, a sh- sheep. Is it? No. Yeah, that's right. Sheep yeah. and wolf. Clo- no, yeah. wolf and sheep. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so then, uh, whichever one, right? Yeah, no, There's wolf, right. Wolves and sheep. But they're all there, right? <laughs> anyway, so um, and, and now I'm saying sheep. So that's not even, not very good England, is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so and so then she just listened to everything I said, and I said, okay, now this is your pattern. This is what you're doing, and you're doing this, and you're doing that, and you're doing that, and you're doing that, and this just keeps cycling around. We have to break that pattern. And so I think that you know breaking patterns makes a huge identifying patterns and breaking patterns is huge for transformation because people don't understand it and that's why i can make all these predictions and people go you're unbelievable it's not, not unbelievable i just see the pattern and i go this is what's going to happen and then i say what happened with that job and they'll tell me this is what happened and i say and i say okay stop how many other jobs have you had three, three jobs and i said this is what happened right this 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 and this and how did you know and this is patterns it's all patterns and so now my goal is now to work with like sort of more c-suite sort of individuals where they just cut straight to the chase. How are you? Good. Bang. Get straight into it. They've got that alpha-ness about them where they've got enough self-confidence to say, okay, just give it to me how it is because I'm pretty straight down the line and to say this is what, it is, this is what you're going to do and get in and get out and really help people, you know, fast because coaching can be a long process over a long period of time. I'm a little bit impatient. So <laughs> I like to work with people who are ready. Mm-hmm. And talking of impatience, you've been really generous with your time. So a couple of things. What are some of the patterns that you put into your own life? Obviously, you built a successful business, reached over half a million uh, people 
uh, and so on. It's pretty impressive. So what are the patterns that you've put in place to, to keep going in this way, to keep putting yourself out and so on? I think it's good to – I have found one thing that I've noticed that people who are what you call super successful, now define that how you want, but generally more materialistic, but um, who are doing well from that point of view, I have found, and even not even, uh, even outside of that, is that they wake up around 5 o'clock. I've just noticed that. Successful people wake up early, very early. And most of them will exercise and most of them will meditate and most of them will organise themselves. These three things I have seen consistently in my spiritual teachers, to CEOs, it is something. You, they go to bed early and they wake up early. So definitely inculcating that. I haven't done it for five o'clock yet. I'm, I'm at six, right, so I'll get there. But um, so getting up, doing my meditation, organising my day, um, trying to do you know, the exercise or the yoga, go for a walk, whatever it might be. Once you get into habits, right, then your habits take care of yourself. You know, there was a, there's a saying, I don't know who wrote this, but uh, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, mm-hmm. reap a habit. Mm-hmm. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Wow. And so if we can get our habits right, first it starts with your thinking, then into your actions, and now the neuroscience tells us approximately 66 days to formulate a habit, right? So I, I know this from personal experience because over the, the lockdowns I did it. <laughs> so I experimented with it. Three cycles of 21 days. So every single day for 21 days, one day gap, another 21 days, one day gap, another 21 days. And over a 66-day period, most habits are formed. It can, it can vary from 18 to 254 days, but 66 days is what it is. And I've got a habit, habit tracker, a tick off every day. Now, if you miss a day, it's okay. Is add two. But if you miss two days, you've got to start that cycle all over again. Oh, wow. So I developed the habit of meditation, yoga, mindfulness, breathing, uh, and I wasn't even doing intermittent fasting at one point. So now I'm pretty much at the weight I was when I was, you know, 25. Mm-hmm. You know? So, so yeah, so if you talk about patterns, I would say yeah. get those habits right, especially in the morning, and get your sleep right, and it makes a makes a big difference amongst other things. But that, that that's one thing I would definitely. Do. And also listening to good things every day, mm-hmm. whether that be the YouTube, some positive, some podcast like your podcast, whatever it might be, something that regenerates you, something that gives you hope, something that reminds you of your higher self, that sort of stuff. Daily, yeah. it cannot be every now and then. Mm-hmm. It has to be every day. And before um, Toby finishes off, us off. <laughs> Before Tom I'm not finishes finish anyway. us off, <laughs> <laughs> as he does after every podcast. <laughs> that's how you do your mindfulness relaxation. Wow, that's, that's amazing. That's, 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 that's one way. That's, that's one way. <laughs> Sixty-six days. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we went to another place, um, didn't we? A completely different place. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, my final question for you today, Darren, is. What can people do if they are inspired by this and want to get to know more about you, your company, and, you know, take the journey with you? Where can they find out more about you? Well, look, my, my company is successintegrate.com, so they're most welcome to come and have a look at that. I mean, there's three things I do. I, I do the, the majority of my work is actually doing seminars. We run about 300-odd seminars a year, oh. mainly in schools, um, but we also do um, the corporate keynotes, which, you know, I'm loving more and more. 
because uh, I work with. I mean, I think a lot of adults will say to me, like experienced adults will say, "Oh, it's amazing you're working with kids because you can change them and you can impact them." Now, because I've been doing that for so long, you know, you, you sort of don't appreciate that. That's fantastic because when you deal with older people, they're filled with a lot of their own stuff, right? So it's hard to you got to you know recondition them almost. But um, so so the, the keynote presentations, the 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 school presentations, seminars. Then I do one-on-one coaching, but I can only take a handful of coaching uh, coaching gigs on because just I just don't have the time, right? When travel overseas, etc., and just doing so many. But but I love that work because you really see the transformation. You take that person on the journey. You hold their hand through it, which is really cool. So I'm happy to take on, but not many. I can only take on a few. And then I do the corporate training stuff, and and the corporate training stuff's more about behavioural change, not do a two or three day thing, but work with them over a three month period. Do like short sort of two-hour sessions and then get have bring mentors into the into the process and then let them work on goals that they set up at the beginning and they work on it over time mm-hmm. so they can develop those habits so by the time we leave they've got the the new habits in place and they're productive and all that sort of stuff so i do the corporate training stuff do the coaching i do the seminars darren you've been um you know very clear on on how the business works now um you've spoken about your life's work being about helping people be themselves. Mm. And so this has become, uh, this is your calling. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. And you were really generous at the beginning in explaining where you came from, the young Darren. In terms of a pivotal moment and when it all kind of coalesced and you said, this is it, what was that moment of clarity for you? I don't think I understood exactly that my real calling was to a calling to the self and and, and being authentic. But th- when I said earlier on, I spoke about that guy called Zig Ziglar. All I knew was when I was seeing people speak up on the stage, it was so inspiring. It was so clear. It was so hopeful. It was so energizing. I said, I want to do this for people. So I want to help transform people's lives. That's, that's, that's how I used to say. In fact, the vision says transforming lives worldwide. So that was definitely it. And, I, and that was, I said to myself, I don't know when this is going to happen, but it will happen before I die. Like it was clear as day. And I think, you know, when you talk about doubts in your mind and stuff, I, I think deep down you need to have a knowing. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to happen. Now, if you told me back then, when do you think it'll happen? I probably would have thought maybe in my 40s. If you told me when I'm when I was thirty that I'll speak to, you know, thirty to fifty thousand people a year, and booking three hundred programs a year one year in advance, I would have passed out. I said, "There's no, there's just no way." What five seminars in one day? Like just, in, I just would not be able to conceive that. Oh, five in a, in a month or five in in a, in a quarter maybe. So I think that now I would say that it would be a calling to self and helping people become who they really are, their authentic self. But back then that moment was seeing those guys up on the stage and yeah. saying, I want to be you and just knowing that was my life's work. And knowing is important mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that will eventually overcome the doubt. But if you're a bit shaky on that ground, it's hard to make that take that step, you know. Yeah, no, that's beautifully put. Thank you very much. Welcome. Thank you so much, Darren, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. The stories you've told and the the way that you expressed yourself so with so much vulnerability and honesty spoke so clearly to me and I'm sure our audience took so much from it as well. So thanks for your time. You're most welcome. 
Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website, moc-pod.com, or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.